0: Well, today we're going to be looking in the gospel of Luke chapter 14. So if you want to open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 14, verse 25, that's going to be the verses that we're going to be looking at today. And I know at Grace Church, a lot of people like to take notes. So if that's you or if you just want to know what our topic is today, our topic is the following, the priority of Christ over all, what it takes to be Jesus's disciple, the priority of Christ over all, what it takes to be Jesus' a disciple. It used to be that we talked a lot about discipleship, it seems, but more and more, it seems like people don't talk very much about it. The word for discipleship, uh, mathetes, is basically a simple word to be a learner. Uh, and in the Bible, it was used of Jesus' disciples that were giant crowds It was used of the 12, and it was used of the three. So discipleship is a really broad term, but to be a disciple takes commitment, and we see commitment around us, and we know what commitment is, to get a job, to keep a job, uh, to get into a college, that was my daughter's, uh, just got through her senior year in high school, takes a lot of commitment, a lot of work. Our relationships take commitment if we want them to really last and be meaningful. You know, and then there's more uh, mundane things like losing weight, right? That takes commitment. I'm now 54 years old. I know I look a lot older. But about, about two years ago, I, I found out that I can't just eat whatever I want anymore. You know, I was one of those skinny guys, I use the word was, that you could just eat whatever you wanted. It didn't really matter. There's some ladies that are like, I wish I could just try that for a little while. Uh, But about two years ago, I found out that I couldn't do that. I gained 20 pounds. So now, every day, I did it this morning, I get on that digital scale, I look down there, and I'm hoping for a number under 193. It's digital, so it's like 193 point whatever, and then victory if I got it, you know? And today, 191.5. It was a good day. It's all for health, though, right? (laughs) No vanity there. Well, a little of both, probably. But it takes commitment to lose weight, to get a job, to keep a job, to get into college. But more important than that, way more important than that, to be Jesus' disciple, it takes commitment. And that's what we're going to see in our verse today. Luke chapter 14, verse 25 and following. And in these verses, Christ gives us five conditions to be his follower. Five conditions to be his follower. Look with me in Luke 14, verse 25. Now, great crowds accompanied him, that is Jesus. Let's just stop right there. The first thing it takes to be Jesus' disciple is that you have to be part of those people that want to follow him. The crowds were following Jesus here, great crowds, lots of them. And although we're going to see in the following verses, Jesus has some tough words to test that crowd, this is the first step to be Jesus' disciple. You have to want to follow him. Now, most of us in here, probably a vast majority, are like, well, Bruce, I'm already there. I've been following him. That's why I'm here right now. But many people, probably most people, would say, follow Jesus. Why do I need that? You know, dumb people do that. People who need a crutch do that. Uh, Weak people do that. You know, that's boring. Why would I want to follow Christ? That, that's totally unnecessary. You know, that, that's weird. And yet Christ calls each one of us. And for those of you today who might be, you know, of that small portion in this room that don't know Christ, don't have that desire to be a part of those that are following Christ, Jesus says, come unto me, all you who are weak and heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Today's Mission Sunday. Maybe you're here for the first time. The greatest thing about Mission Sunday is if you would start today to want to follow Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Do you want life? Do you want to know what the truth is? Then you need to follow Christ. Jesus said, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. If you don't know Christ, you need to turn from your sin, realize that you're a sinner. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and put your faith in him who died on the cross for you and took your sin that you might be able to be his follower and know and love God. The book of Romans chapter 10 verse 9 says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, what's the promise? You shall be saved praise God. Can I hear amen for that? Amen. In Ukraine, they say amen. I like that. I like that. Not quite as much as maybe in the black churches, but I like a little interaction. Uh, Pastor Montoya used to teach her at the seminary. You know, he's always calling for that. So if you feel uh, like doing that, Nathan, where are you? That's okay, yeah? Amen. amen. There we go. Good. If I hear any, you know, Lord, help him or anything like that, you know, I'll probably need that also. So we need to start with the commitment to be a follower. Great crowds were accompanying him. Most of us in here already want to be his follower, want to follow after him. But interestingly enough, even with this big, great crowd, Jesus doesn't just bask in that. He now then gives them some really tough words to test their discipleship. And the second condition of being his disciple is not only wanting to follow him, but you have to love God far above everyone else. Next verse talks about that. Loving God far above everyone else. Verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Hate your mother and father. Wow. Your wife, your family, and yourself. These are difficult words to understand. Now, I'm interested, how many of you, as you look in your Bible, have a different word there than the word hate? Maybe, you know, some other synonym or something else. Raise your hand just, you know, if if you have something else. Does everybody's Bible in here say the word hate? It looks like it. Yeah, every single person. So, do we actually literally need to hate all these categories of people? And the answer is no. No. Now, I want to ask you why, but I'm the one who's supposed to be explaining right now. You know what? To love them less. less. That's exactly right. That's the right answer. But how do we get to that right answer? Two ways. First of all, if we look at parallel passages for each of these categories of people, we'll see that we're not actually supposed to hate our parents. What does the Ten Commandments say? That you are to honor your parents. Okay, that's definitely different. What about uh, husbands and our wives? Are we to hate them? No, we're to love our wives as Christ loved the church, Ephesians chapter 5. How about uh, to our children? In Ephesians 6, 4, it says, fathers, don't provoke them to anger, don't cause them to be angry. Well, hating them would certainly do that, so that doesn't make sense. And how about our brothers and sisters? In 1 John chapter 4, verse 21, it says, whoever loves God must love his brother also. So we're to love our brothers. So why does it say hate? Hate is an exaggerated way to show that we're supposed to love God so much more than all of our other human relations. You say, well, sounds good, Bruce. Yeah, there's some references. references but how you know that's what it means? We have almost the exact same parallel usage of love and hate in the Old Testament. So let's turn there to see how this exact idea Is taught in Genesis chapter 29, verse 30 and 31. Genesis 29, 30, and 31. Genesis 29, 30. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. Now, most of us probably remember the story. Uh, Jacob serves for seven years to get Rachel. On the wedding night, he gets the switcheroo, gets Leah instead. Now, how that happens, I'm not really sure. But anyways, (laughs) he serves another seven years to get Leah. And he didn't really love Leah very much. He really wanted Rachel. So it says that Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. But it doesn't mean they didn't love Leah, just more. The next verse tells us how much more. Verse 31, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, well, the previous verse just said that she was loved, but not that much, loved more. So the love that was there was so different for Rachel than Leah that it could be compared to hate, even though it was love. This is the exact usage that we have back in our main text in Luke chapter 14. Should we hate our parents, those around us that are all named in that passage? Of course not. But the difference should be so great in comparison that it would be night and day, uh, you know, so high that you can consider it to be hate. So that's the first reason that we know that this isn't literal hate here. It's a hyperbole is because other texts show us that we actually love these people and because, secondly, the meaning of this word, the definition of this word, has a wide range. It can be translated as hate as it is here. Uh, It can also be translated in the best uh, lexicon as to disfavor or disregard. So that's the idea here. They're not favored as much. They're not loved as much. So it goes from little bit of love to actual hate is the span of this word. And Jesus uses this word to kind of shock us, to help us really think about how much do I love the Lord? Is he so much the center of my life that others could consider it hate in my love to other people? Matthew chapter 10, verse 37, kind of gives the gist of this this verse here in Luke 14. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. That's the gist. If you love them more, you're not worthy of me. But he uses this stark exaggeration to help us to think. Instead of, yeah, I love God, but do I really love him? Is it really as deep as it should be? The first commandment, the greatest commandment, is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. That's the positive command, what we should do. Here, Jesus has shown us the negative. It should be our love to others like hate in comparison to our love for God. Exodus 20, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. And sometimes people can have child centers, families, where everything circles around the child. Should we love our children? Absolutely. Teach them and raise them in the admonition and love of the Lord? Absolutely. But our love for them should be like hate in comparison. Do you have a child-centered family? You need to change your priorities. Do you love these more than me? Jesus said to Peter. And he's asking us today, do you love me more than these? Our mother, our father, even our spouses, our children, our brothers, our sisters, some people have parent-centered families. You're like, really? Yeah, they never cut the cord. They're going back to mom or dad to get that you know, personal advice to share their heart with them. No, that should be your spouse. But even more than your spouse, it should be the Lord. How about in your life? Not child-centered family, not parent-centered family, not even spouse-centered family. As wonderful it is to have spouses, as wonderful it is to be married, the Lord is number one. I heard not too long ago a wedding where when the husband and wife-to-be were about to be married, as they were giving their vows, uh, the husband and wife said, you know, I promise to love you. He said, I promise to love you as Christ loved the church. And yet, as he said that, he said, and yet I promise to love Christ most of all. Because as I follow that commandment, I'll be able to love you as God wants me to love you. That's the right idea. That's what Jesus is getting at here. We don't need and shouldn't have sibling-centered families. I know one family where all the girls just, they don't, even from a distance, can't do anything without, you know, letting the other one what they're doing. You know, when they gave birth, you know, the sisters all showed up. (laughs) Now, it's wonderful to have that kind of family. We don't see that kind of thing very often. And yet that should be hate in comparison to our love for God, and we shouldn't have pet centered families. <laughs> now, I know this is a step away from the direct application here, but you know, I read in the newspaper that some people are spending thousands, even tens of thousands of dollars to bury their pet. Pets are wonderful; they're part of god's wonderful grace. You know, they hardly ever you know talk back to you, do anything <laughs> like that. Uh, they usually look cute. They like to be around you. It's wonderful. And yet some people have twisted, you know, things so much so that the pets are more important than people, let alone than God. You know, Romans talks about worshiping the creation rather than creator. That's one example of that right there. God is the one we love more than anybody or anything else. You know, we see commitment. That's how I started the sermon here. We see commitment in sports. We see commitment even in false religions. You know, these suicide bombers often are are motivated by that kind of thing. Do we have the same kind of commitment to God as people who have a commitment to false religions? I was raised in the Mormon church, LDS. You know, a lot of Mormons, they seem more committed than us to a works, righteous religion. You know, may the Lord stimulate us to say, we've got the Holy Spirit. We can do so much better. We can depend on him and live true Christian life. I was, uh, you know, Amy and I have been in Ukraine for a while, and uh, there's still a lot of results of the communist thinking that were there in the Soviet Union period of time. And I found a quote of somebody who talks about his commitment to communism. And as I read it, think about your commitment to Christ. Do you have this kind of commitment to the living God instead of a false ideology like this guy? And this little quote was written when he wanted to tell his fiance that I'm breaking off the relationship because my commitment is so strong to communism. Communism is my life. It's my business, my religion, my sweetheart, my wife, my mistress, my bread, and my meat. I work at it in the daytime and dream about it at night. Its hold on me grows and not lessens as time goes by. Therefore, I, therefore, I cannot carry on a friendship, a love affair, or even a conversation without relating it to this force which both drives me and guides my life. I've already been in jail because of these ideas, and if necessary, I am ready to go before a firing squad. We know Jesus Christ. Our commitment should be even greater. He is worthy of our commitment. Amen? Amen. So I ask you, are you as committed as this communist? Are you as committed as the suicide bomber? I ask you, where's your heart today? Where does your love for God rank? Are you willing to sacrifice all relationships for him? Do you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Maybe God's calling some of us today to right now intercede, say, you know what, Lord, I've gotten this mixed up. My love for my wife is basically, or husband, the same as my love for you. Sometimes weaker, my love for you, than that relationship. Or to my kids, or to my parents. Confess that to the Lord right now. Nathan quoted uh, James, be doers of the word, not hearers only. Ask the Lord to help you change. Uh, speaking of commitment, uh, Jim George, maybe some of you know him, uh, used to work at the church here, serve at the church, and he was also the guidance counselor who would help seminary students who are graduating to find jobs. And I hope this is just like an urban legend, but I heard it was real that one seminary student was finishing up his uh, seminary career and about to start to take a pastorate, and he asked Jim George to help him find a pastorate. And he said, you know what, Jim, I'm willing to go anywhere to serve the Lord as long as it's within about 30 or 35 miles of my mom's parents. So, Lord, anything as long as it fits what I want. How about you in your life? Are you saying to the Lord today, Lord, I'll do anything for you as long as I get to stay in my present job? As long as you don't make me be a missionary? Amy, my wife, didn't come to the Lord for a while because she knew God would make her a missionary. Well, the thing is, is once you really come to the Lord, He changes our hearts. So we want to do His will, and it's a joy. So don't be afraid that the Lord's going to do something that's really going to hurt you unless it's really good for you. And yet, as we think of these things, of God being the priority, our love for Him being so great that in comparison to all other loves, it feels like, hey, you might be saying, you know, Bruce, I want to love God more. So often it's kind of equal with all these other human loves. Can you help me? I mean, how do we do it? Do we just try really hard? And yes, we should try. We should put in effort. But that effort needs to be dependent upon God. But what more specifically can we do? And I thought of two things really practically. How can we increase our love for God so much more that it would seem like hate, or at least be on the way? Because you know what? I'm not here either. It's hard for me, you know, to love God, uh, sometimes equally with those that are around me. Two things, how we can increase our love for God. Focus on God's character. Remind yourself of who God is. Meditate on his beauty. Dwelling in the temple on his beauty. Thinking about who he is. And as we uplift and correct our thinking about who God is in our minds, and see his greatness, that will cause us to love him more because we'll see who he is and all of his wonderful attributes. So I I sometimes do this in my own life. You know, if I'm just praying prayers, the give me, give me prayers, Lord, help me with this, do this, and I'm trudging through life to put all that aside and look at his beauty, look at his characteristics, read some verses about that, maybe even get a book on the attributes of God and think about how great he is, and it'll change you. I've had that happen where I go into prayer, I start praying, I'm focused on me or my ministry or my problems, and then I start praying about who God is, how wonderful he is, and then I'm different. I come out of the prayer time and I've got a positive attitude, usually. Because I, the circumstances didn't change, but I changed in light of who God is. If you want to love him more, Focus on his character. Secondly, another way we can love God more is if we remember the great debt that you have been forgiven. Remember the debt of what you've been forgiven. In Luke chapter 7, verses 40 through 47, Jesus gives a parable. This lady had been crying on his feet and wiping his feet with her tears. And the Pharisee that's talking to Jesus is like, this lady is not one of those good kind of ladies. I don't know why you're letting her do this to your feet. And Jesus says, hey, I want to tell you something. He says, teacher, go ahead and tell it. And he says, there was two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Now, I don't know if you've thought about how much a denarii is, but it's a day's wage. So 50 denarii is not a small thing. If you had a month and a half, a little bit more of wages taken away or given to you like extra, that would make a big difference. So 50 denarii, it's not insignificant. So this guy was forgiven something that's still pretty significant amount of money, month and a half or more wages. But the other debtor was forgiven 500 days wages. So what is that, a year and three quarters wages? Yeah, more than a year for sure, right? at least a year and a half. Who knows math in here? Tell me, right? Year and a half, year and three quarters, year two thirds, something like that. That's why I teach instead of do math. <laughs> but he was forgiven so much more. So who would be, love the guy who forgave them the debt more? And the Pharisee says, well, I presume the one who's forgiven more. And Jesus says, you got it. And that's why this woman, is crying over my feet. That's why this woman loves me so much. Is because she knows what she has been forgiven. And Jesus ends that section of that parable in Luke 7:47. He who has been forgiven little, loves little. Do you love Jesus little? Maybe it's because you've been forgot. You've forgotten how much He's forgiven you. I tend to do that. We're people who just take things for granted. It's supposed to be this way. If you've been a Christian for a long time, you're just like, yeah, I got salvation. Yeah, it's supposed to be that way. We need to treasure the salvation we've been given. We need to remember what God has done for us. We need to remember the hell that we were going to, except for Christ. If you want to love God more, we don't need to love our wives and our husbands and our parents less. That's not the goal here. But instead, to love them And to love God so much more that it would seem like hate in comparison. Remember God's greatness. Remember what you've been forgiven. And that will help you to love him more. You know, and as much as we need to work at this, we can't really change our own hearts. We need God to do that. And so at the end of this uh, second condition of loving God above everyone else, I wrote a small little prayer. And maybe you can just, as I read it, pray this in your own heart because we need the Lord to change us in order to have this kind of love for him. So even though I'm reading it, that doesn't mean, you know, we're not really going to think about this and pray it. God, save us from our twisted and evil hearts. Take these hearts of stone and make them hearts of flesh. God, enliven our commitment, our passions, our desires for you so that it wells up inside of us with joyous excitement that can't be held in and can't be compared to any other love. I wrote that for myself. Well, the third condition, not only do we need to want to follow Christ to be his disciple, and not only do we need to love God above everyone else, but thirdly, In verse 27, we need to continually, often painfully, die to ourselves, die to ourselves. Jesus gives another striking uh, metaphor, striking comment here on what it means to be a disciple in verse 27 of Luke 14. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple This is shocking, to bear your own cross. People in the first century knew what this meant. It involved maybe two or three parts to bear your cross. First of all, you were condemned, and after you were condemned, you would be brought out to a whipping post, and the soldier would whip you with a whip usually made of leather that would have these bits of bone and metal in it that would scrape out chunks of your back as you were whipped. Then the crossbar, not the whole cross, not the vertical part, but only the horizontal part, would be strapped onto your back and onto your arms. And your back being all raw would have this wood that was, you know, not finished. Scrape it on your back, and you would have to start to carry this if you had enough strength. Jesus could barely do it, so they got Simon the Cyrene, to help him. And there would be four soldiers, one in the front, one in the back, and one on each side to make sure that you kept with the program. And then the final part of bearing your own cross was when they'd throw you on the ground and attach that crossbar up onto the vertical part and for hours, maybe even in days, in pain, you would hang there and die. Now, I don't actually enjoy that. My wife says, you know, sometimes preachers, you know, go into details that, you know, aren't that pleasant. You don't really want that much. And yet Christ uses this vivid illustration to show us that we must die to ourselves. Interestingly, bear your own cross is in the present tense. It's to be a continual thing. Like Romans chapter 12 talks about, to be a living sacrifice to Christ. Bearing our cross means we're continually to deny ourselves, to sacrifice our lives, and to live for him. Galatians 2, 20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. You know, that's not just a song where we kind of, I've been crucified with Christ, there's no longer, I. no, I'm dead, I'm gone. This life that I now live, I no longer live for myself, but Christ who lives in me. How are you doing on bearing your cross in your family, at home? Do you give up your hopes and dreams and aspirations for God's? They should coincide, but sometimes they don't. Christ said, I've come to give you life and give it to you Abundantly. A seed must be buried in the ground so that it can spring to life. A caterpillar entombs itself in a cocoon so that it can later fly. A Christian carries a cross that he can find fullness of life. Notice in the verse here, it says not only do we bear our cross, continual, present tense, but it says we come after him. We not only die to self, but we live to God. How are you doing in living to God? Are you just trudging through life? Are you living abundant life, loving him? Because as we deny ourselves, we need to fill ourselves with the Lord, with his good works, Ephesians 2.10, we like to quote the first two verses, Ephesians 8, 9, and 10, but we are His workmanship in order to do good works. That's where we find joy, in fellowship, in service, in loving the Lord. So we need to say, not only am I bearing the cross, denying myself, living for Him sacrificially, but following Him. Have you stopped on the pathway? Have you gotten comfortable? Are you willing to give up everything? deny yourself. I thought, are these two piddly of examples? And I thought, no, we need to deny ourselves in small things, in giving myself the right to be irritated with other people, giving myself the right to be impatient with people. They're not doing their job. I do that sometimes. I went to the DMV yesterday with my daughter to get her driver's license. It's like, wow, what are these people thinking here? We're paying tax money. I was like in eight different lines, four hours. This applies to me. In Russian they say poop zimli. You're not the center of the world, Bruce. Actually means belly button of the world. Kind of weird, huh? But it sounds good in Russian. <laughs> You're not the center of the world. How about taking up your cross in something as simple as not being lazy? so that you can get up and have a quiet time, so you can spend time with the Lord. How about in our family relationships, consider others as more important than yourself? So husbands, do we snap at our wives? Are we short with them? Do we yell? I mean, who in here would yell? Sorry, I've actually done that, but I did ask the Lord to forgive me. Do you treat your wife or your spouse like an employee? Are you tender with them, listening to them, putting them first, dying to yourself? I was sitting at a table of missionaries this last week, and this topic actually came up. And one of the senior missionaries said, do I do anything in my relationship that doesn't have selfishness involved? Relationship with my wife. And then a professor at this seminary was at the table and said, do I do any of my ministry Without the Lord's help, he's talking about. Only for him, without any self-interest. We cannot die to ourselves unless God is giving us the ability to do it. We need to ask him to help us do that. Maybe the Lord is calling some of you to be missionaries. Are you willing to do that, to die to yourself? Maybe some of you, God is calling the the wife to stay home and not work, and you're not going to have as much money. And the part of coming after me, are you enjoying him and finding satisfaction in him? Your joy is in Christ. Again, uh, this third condition here at the end, I wrote a prayer. Again, I feel helpless really to to die to myself. It's against our nature. We need God to do this. And so again, I would encourage you uh, to think of this prayer and pray this prayer as we think about what it means to bear your cross, and follow Christ, and to ask God to change your heart, because we need a heart change. God, help us to enjoy you and your heart more than ourselves. Oh, God, I thought I loved the things that you love, yet so often those are not the things that I'm about. Help me, Lord, change me, forgive me. Help me to bear the cross that you want me to bear, knowing that true joy and true life is in you. Help me to see dying to myself will lead to true life. Life indeed, life in you. So, the fourth condition is that you have to count the cost if you want to be Jesus' disciple. You have to count the cost if you want to be Jesus' disciple. And here we see this with two illustrations in Luke 14:32 and 34. One is of a builder and one is of a warrior. Two common themes uh, for people in the first century. And let's read in uh, verse 28, Jesus says, "For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost whether he has enough to complete it?" Different views of what this tower might be probably most likely it was somebody building a tower in their yard where they did farming in order to be able to look out and see if any animals were going to scavenge in their food or if anybody was going to break in and steal their stuff. So it's probably a watchtower that's to watch against these uh, people or animals that would ruin their crops. And of course, if you're going to build a tower, you got to think about whether you can finish it or not. Otherwise when he has laid the foundation, is not able to finish, all who see begin to mock him. In those days of a culture where shame was really important, uh, this would be a big deal, that everyone thinks that you're some kind of bozo, couldn't finish what you started. And Jesus is saying to us, are you going to finish the job? Are you committed to going all the way with me? And he gives a second illustration. What king Verse 31, going out to encounter another king in war will not first sit down and deliberate to think whether he's able with 10,000 to meet those who come with 20,000. We're in a spiritual war. Life is a battle. We forget that that war is happening around us sometimes. And yet we need to count the cost. Can we win the battle? Am I committed to follow Christ, who is the only one who can help us win the battle? Have you counted the cost? Most of us did when we got saved. But how about lately? John MacArthur tells the story years ago. I don't know if he's uh, mentioned it recently. When he was on the track team and the guys were passing on the baton, I believe that John was in some of the first uh, legs of of the race. And I think it was the guy on the third leg or maybe the fourth leg. He starts running with the baton and all of a sudden around the corner, he just sits down. They all run over. Are you okay? Did you pull a hamstring? What happened to you? What happened? I didn't feel like running anymore. What? You didn't feel like running anymore? Have you just rested on the sideline? Don't feel like running anymore? Maybe give the little uh, view that it looks like I'm running when you're really not. Have you counted the cost? Are you willing to pay the cost now? The fifth and final condition to be Jesus' disciple, is you need to renounce all of your possessions, verse 35. Jesus finishes his teaching here with another difficult statement. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce ESV or give up an ESV, all that he has cannot be my disciple. I remember years ago when I was in seminary here at Master's Seminary, I asked this to Pastor John in one of the Q&A times. What does this verse mean? I have to give up all of my possessions. And by the way, most of us in here still seem to have a few. Sometimes we just blow this verse off really quickly. Well, it can't mean what it does, you know, what it seems to mean. So let's just go on. Again, Jesus uses a hyperbole and a strong word to make us really think, are you ready to give up everything Are you really willing to do that? And maybe you should do that. And the word here to give up can be translated renounce, give up as it is in the NASB, or to say goodbye to something. And this uh, meaning of say goodbye to something is how this same word is used in Luke 9.61. Somebody wanted to say goodbye to somebody else. So we need to be ready to say goodbye, give up, and maybe literally give or at least renounce everything we have. And again, it's in the present tense. We're to continually, over and over, renounce, say goodbye to everything that we have. As Americans, 41% of the world's wealth belongs to us, even though we're only 4% of the world's population. 71% of the world lives on less than $10 a day. And 1 billion people live on 50 cents a day. Why do I say that? That we'd realize that we are rich, number one. Realize, number two, that we have a lot to renounce and to give up and to be ready to say goodbye to. And if you say, Bruce, you got the wrong person here, No, if you're in this room right now, you're rich, and so am I. The Ukrainians come to our apartment, and it's about 92 square meters. So do the math. I think that's less than 1,000 square feet. And they'll say, wow, how many people live in this apartment? Not people, excuse me. How many families live in this apartment? Because they're thinking like three generations would live in there. So we have a lot, and that means we have a lot of responsibility The ring ruler wanted to know, what do I need to do to be saved? And he says, well, I follow these commandments. And Jesus says, give up all you have and give it to the poor. And the text says he went away saddened and grieved because he had much. Are your clothes, house, car, gadgets, whatever else, fill in the blank, hindering your relationship with Jesus Christ? Could you actually give them away if Christ called you to do so? There's only been a couple times in my life, but there's a family in our church in Kiev that really needs a a place to live, and they've had a really difficult life. And a few times in my better moments in prayer, I've said, Lord, do you want me to give them just basically our savings so they could buy an apartment? Have you ever prayed that kind of prayer? Has it even come to your mind? That's where the Lord wants us to go with this, that we're willing to say goodbye to it all, give it all for Christ. Well, Jesus ends this sermon with an interesting illustration about salt. In Luke 14, verse 35, he gives his own conclusion to these five conditions of being his disciple. And he says here, salt is good. Now, how is salt good? It preserves things. Back in those days, they didn't have refrigerators, so you had to use salt to dry fish, dry meat, dry different things. That was like your refrigerator. So salt is really good. We need to be a preservative in this society. Salt is good. Are you a preservative? Salt is good also in the Old Testament as a sacrifice. It was given as part of sacrifices in the Old Testament. Are you a sacrifice for Christ as salt for Christ? We are the salt of the world. And salt is good for seasoning. Ancient times and modern times, we all like to eat. We like to eat with good seasoning. And I ask you, are you the salt of the earth that is a seasoning to life? But not only is salt good in verse 34... But if salt has lost its taste, how will the saltiness be restored? What do you do? Put more salt in there to make it salty? No, that would waste it. And he says, for it's no use if you've lost your saltiness. It's no use for what? Two things, for the soil or the manure pile. Now, when I read this for years, when I read this, I thought, well, that just means the salt is bad. So you throw it in the soil. Uh, and it gets stomped on, and you throw it in manure pile because it's no good. That's not what Jesus is saying here. He says it's no good for the soil. It's a positive thing for the soil. And salt used in the right amounts on the right plants actually is a fertilizer and helps it grow. My sister uses salt for her roses. And if you look on the back of the Epsom salt thing, it talks about how to use uh, salt for plants. I typed it in the Internet, and it talks about using salt for growing. So when we are the salt of the world, we can help others grow. And salt in manure, agricultural context here, manure is important. We want things to grow. We want to eat. Salt in manure actually helps the manure work better. So Christ is saying to us, are you being salty for me? Have you lost your saltiness. And there's two ways salt can lose its taste or its its uh, saltiness. One, by corruption with other elements. Salt in the first century came from the Dead Sea, and there's a lot of other elements around the salt, like gypsum and carmelite, that can look white, is white lots of the time, looks like salt. And as it's mixed together, it corrupts the salt. So I say and ask you today, have you been corrupted in your saltiness? Have you let Other pollutants, such as not putting God first in your life, loving your mother, your father, your children more than Christ, that corrupts our saltiness. That's one way we lose our taste, by being corrupted with other elements. Another way is by letting the salt be leached out of our life. If water or rain comes through salt, it can just leach it out. It's no good anymore. Are there things in your life that are leeching out your saltiness, such as your love for things, that drains our love for God? Some hidden sin in your life that just drains and saps your power in your life. We lose our saltiness. So Christ is saying to us today, don't lose your saltiness. Don't be corrupted by other things. Don't be polluted. Don't let your saltiness be leached out. Be a true disciple. Love him with all your heart. Don't let possessions take away your true love for him. Die to yourself, live for Christ, and we'll have life indeed. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, these are uh, tough words. Lord, we fall so short from our love being like hate. Lord, we fall so short of being ready to say goodbye to everything and maybe actually doing it. Lord, we fall so short for counting the cost and living in abandonment to follow you and deny ourselves and to die daily. God, we need your help. Change us, bless us, work in our lives, help us to not be forgetful hearers, but effectual doers. Until that day that you return and we're with you. In Jesus' name, amen.